Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clinton. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. Yeah, this is our this is our first public launch episode, so we're very excited. Yes, yeah, and you know we hope you enjoy. So, anyways, that aside, we'll go ahead and get started. Could we somehow contrive one of those lies that come into being in case of need, some one noble lie to persuade, in the best case, even the rulers, but if not them, the rest of the city? What sort of a thing? Nothing new, but one which has already happened in many places before, but has not happened in our time. And I don't know if it could, one that requires a great deal of persuasion. How hesitant you seem to be to speak. You'll think my hesitation quite appropriate, too, when I do speak. Speak, and don't be afraid. I shall speak, and yet I don't know what I'll use for daring or speeches in telling it. And I'll attempt to persuade first the rulers and the soldiers, then the rest of the city. What you just heard is a passage from Plato's Republic. And in this episode of Bird's Eye, we're not just going to be talking about it, but we're going to be talking about what it's talking about. And that's myth and its role in politics. Now, if you're thinking, hold on, wait a second, myth is a totally different thing from politics. It's a religious thing or, or, or something else, right? Well, let's get into three different definitions of myth that are maybe helpful to understandings of what we're talking about today. Yeah. First of all, because we're going to be you know, settling on this topic for the next four weeks of Bird's Eye. This is a topic we're super excited to bring. When we started Spectacles, this was like one of the first things we were like, this is what we would love to talk about in a podcast. So we're really excited to bring it to you guys. But yeah, so these definitions. Yeah, so so first we've got a definition, just classic dictionary stuff from Oxford's English Dictionary. In there, it says that a myth is a traditional story especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. It's also defined as a widely held but false belief or idea. Yeah. I think that's an important theme that people have when they think of myth, is that it's something fundamentally untrue, fictitious, or misleading. Right. But one that sort of endures. It, 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 it's sort of pervasive in, in our lives. And that we'll talk about that a good amount. But we also have this other definition, which maybe brings it closer to politics. In a book, political science book called Political Myth, the political scientist Christopher Flood defines political myth as, quote, an ideologically marked narrative, which purports to give a true account of a set of past, present, or predicted political events, and which is accepted as valid in its essentials by a social group. It's very wordy. Yeah, that is very wordy. But basically what he's saying is that they're ideologically loaded stories mm-hmm. about the past yeah, or the future. But, but I think normally the past, which a group of people or a political group accepts to be true. Right. I think that's essentially what he's saying. And that's still wordy, but I think it's an easier way of getting around it. Yeah. So, so th- that's two of the definitions that we have. And then... One more, and this goes more to 
really more evocative of the passage that we read from the Republic. And this is sort of a classical Greek understanding of myth in politics or broadly, just Mm -hmm. myth in general, whether it's political or religious. And also those things were pretty intertwined back then. But you could think of it as a symbolic representation of something understood to be true. Right. In some way, through myth, something true or rational is conveyed, even if what it is is a story and or something that we feel deeply in ourselves to be true is, is can be conveyed as a story. And I think that that is it's not a common way of thinking about it today, but maybe one that's important. And we'll sort of tease that out as we go along. What would you say sort of pull out of these definitions, these four definitions that we have, right? A story of our origins maybe has supernatural elements, something widely held, you know, to be true, but it's actually false, you know, ideological narratives that sort of shape the thinking of a social group, or maybe some, you know, the stories that convey something that feels true to us. What is, what do we pull out of that, Philip? You know, I think that the important thread there is that they are popular stories Mm -hmm. that are told between people, you know, passed down and whether or not they're true or held to be true, they explain something that people believe to be the truth, right? Right. And so the explanation might not be factual or accurate. And I think that 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 is the crucial part, that myths serve as explanations, accurate or not, of things that are believed to be true. Right. I think also that they sort of, at least in these definitions, right, we see they have these sort of this sort of defining characteristic, a characteristic that is that defines a society in certain ways, that strikes a chord in us as it explains, you know, certain natural or social social phenomena. Yeah, that's sort of getting at well, what the hell do we mean by myth? But you may also still be wondering where does myth place in politics? How is it relevant to us in a society, which I think right and sort of relevant to our discussion? overarching theme of democracy in the United States and around the world today, how does it factor into a society which places, or at least should we think, place a high value on truth? What is the relevance to us there? And I think that's an yeah. important that's an important entry point for the discussion. And I think that that is a crucial question to ask. It's super important and it's useful. And I think one thing that can help demonstrate just how relevant the discussion of myth continues to be for not just societies, but individual people. We all tell ourselves stories that make us feel better or help us order an existence that may feel unjust or scary right? all the time. And that's a personal thing often, but it's also often a social thing that we'll all sort of agree on a story that helps us to not just coexist, but come to terms with a shared difficulty. Mm-hmm. Or a shared aspiration. Yeah, and sort of exploring that social side of it, right? The social role that myth plays. I think it's good to, you know, for us to give our listeners some some examples of myths to give ourselves and our and our listeners a little bit of grounding in terms of what we mean, what its relevance is, and you know, from there move into a larger discussion. But I think one place that we would start is the Republic, the the Platonic dialogue from which we just read a, a very important passage, right, where Socrates, who's the speaker that I was playing, advocates for the use of what he calls noble lies to justify a political community. And, you know, 
substitute here sort of myths for, for noble lies, um, lies, things that may not be true, but have a purpose in ordering our, our, our life. And in the Republic, Socrates, one of the noble lies for, for which he advocates is the idea that people are born with uh, metal in their soul, gold, silver, and bronze. And those with gold in their souls are ranked the highest in the society. Those with silver are ranked in the middle, and those with bronze are ranked last. And the implication is that in, in, in the Republic is that that's not true, but somehow the argument is that, that it would be useful for ordering the society, for hierarchy, which may be good for social organization, or at least that's the claim. And we probably don't agree with that today, but in that time, that was perhaps thought to be important. So this myth was proposed as something that would help rightly order a society, whether or not it's true. Yeah, and I think in not just Plato's fictional republic, mm -hmm. but in the real historical Athens, the story of their founding is wrapped in all kinds of mythology. Mm -hmm. Their first king was the child of a god. And one thing that's interesting about that myth is not just that he's divine. You know, he didn't come down from Mount Olympus, according to their myth, where all the other gods lived in the, in the Greek pantheon. Right. But he came up out of the ground. Right. Right where Athens is and was. And... That was important for their myth because what it gave the Athenians was a claim to their land. Yeah, a sense of indigeneity that they have a unique and specific and even a divine claim to the land that they rest on. But in particular, I think that's important because it may serve to obscure the origins of a political community, which might be born out of conquest right. or settlement. Right. And it also makes the political community have a unique significance, a divine significance, which may, you know, give it a sense of symbolic importance. Yeah, it, it does do that. And it also, going off of what we've both said about how it gives a claim to the land, maybe obscures the history of how they got there. Maybe the first people that started up Athens, there were other people in the region before they came. Right. And they were a stronger tribe and they beat them out and they took their land and maybe it was terribly brutal, but they have this story that justifies their presence. You know, it protects them maybe from guilt, which would lead to a collapse of their social cohesion, right? A about their past. And I think that's particularly relevant. I mean, it should be intuitively relevant. It should sound very familiar to discussions that are happening in the U.S. right now about, right. about the American settlement of, well... America, not just the West, but the East too, right? right? And the the people that were displaced or killed in that process. Right. And I think that in the US, we also have had for a long time, and it's coming under fire today with all kinds of good reason, that we've had this myth about the American founding first. It was religious refugees who came here and who thought they had like a divine reason for being there. Right. And that was actually an important part during the early Republic. It was like, we've been given this land by Providence. And you can read some of this from the text from that era, from that era. And they think that, right, that this land has been being given to this, you know, unique white Protestant Christian people, which right. justifies the brutal conquest of natives in the settling of, of the Eastern seaboard of the United States. Right. Right. Cause they were, cause they were chosen by God, very similar to this divine tie that you see in the Athenian myth 
We have it in the American myth too. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, you see later in American history, the growth of this manifest destiny, mm-hmm. this idea that America is divinely blessed, not just with the Eastern seaboard, but to possess... Sea to shining sea? Sea to shining sea. Yeah. Right. And so it's not just, oh, it's a thing in Plato and it's a thing in ancient Athens. It's a thing that's been critical throughout much of American history and American, you know, how a lot of Americans have thought about themselves and their country for a long time. The narratives that we choose to embrace or want to embrace. And the, the you know, another side of the American myth, right, is the one that we all know probably the best, the closest to our hearts, or at least historically has been, is the, the, the ideas of the Declaration of Independence, right? All men are, you know, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that we're all equal. That's a very important part of American mythology. And today, right, of course, again, we're seeing myths challenged, which I think in some ways lends to the significance of this episode and, you know, understanding these myths. But it's been, it's been sort of a North Star. People have conceived of it as the North Star of American political life. We have this, you know, statement of, of human equality, which is very important to us. And that is something that, you know, we can say is true, right? All humans are equal, but it's also you know, forms the narrative of American life. And I think that's why we put it under the banner of of myth. And that, I think, also helps to sort of bring home the relevance to liberal democracy, right, which is sort of the thematic material of spectacles. On one level, right, liberal democracy seems like sort of the rational regime, the regime based in reason. But I'd say that myths are... And and it's, you know, purports to be completely secular and rational. Right, right, right. Separate from religion and what we would think of as traditional myth right but myths are still important the stories that we tell ourselves that our that our country was founded in equality and that's what gives us our, our meaning today even if as we have seen so much evidence of that's not true but it still feels very important to well, us and i think that this is important because we're not trying to in this episode talk about what myths are true and what myths aren't mm-hmm. and talk about you know the importance of whether a myth is true or false or anything like that Ultimately, we're talking about just what can myths do in society? What happens when you, what can happen when you lose them? And why do we need them? And I think the more important thing is not whether they're true or not, but whether they're believed. Mm -hmm. Now, historical evidence and its publication and all these things can have a great deal of an effect on whether people believe them. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, stories about the past are more true or less true. There's no way of deciding with finality what's true and what's false completely. And I think that's relevant to the American discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think there, right, we see evidence, for example, that the founders held some views that were very inegalitarian, right, on the basis right. of, you know, property or race, clearly. And that evidence in a lot of ways today, I think we're seeing it all over, undermines, right, our, our, our closely held myth of America is all about equality. It's the, you know, it's and freedom and all that, right? It, 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 it really undermines that in significant and, and profound ways. And you even see that, right? The conflicts in the thought of the founders. Yeah. And I think that this goes to the point about there's no way through history of telling what's true and what's false in totality, only more or less. And you amass evidence to one side or the other to construct a story. I think Thomas Jefferson is a great example, owned an incredible number of slaves, right? Was a ardent supporter of slavery and its place in the new republic and yet also helped to pen those documents right declaring equality of man and 
you could say this guy never believed a word he said, but also, you know, he's got diaries talking about how guilty his conscience is and how certain he is that God is going to damn him and free the slaves. So it's just, you know, you, I'm not trying to say Thomas Jefferson was a good guy. Dude held hundreds of human beings in bondage and put them into slave labor. Right. Not a good man, right? But I think it points to the fact that these historical narratives are complicated. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of evidence to construct all kinds of narratives. Right. So it's not a question of what myths are true and what aren't. It's a question of what, be, what we believe based on what we're offered yeah. and what evidence we see yeah. and what narratives were provided. Because right. at the end of the day, history uses evidence to produce all kinds of narratives just like myths. Right. 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 And I think that sort of constitutes one caveat of our discussion right here that we're talking about is, you know, we're talking about myths and how they are believed. Truth and evidence factor in, but may not be the sort of all deciding factor. Another caveat that I think we should bring up here is that the role of myth in political life is not all encompassing. It's not the entire story of why humans cooperate, why we have been able to achieve such mass levels of society. Obviously, things like coercion matter, right? Who can, you know, who has who has power and who can tell other people what to do? We also have like a sort of rational understanding that cooperation is beneficial, right? I mean, we sort of in our day-to-day lives, and I think we can assume in very early human life, people sort of understood, well, if we work together on this particular problem, we can, you know, do it better than if we were doing it alone, right? Think of like hunter-gatherers hunting woolly mammoths that's that's a that's a one plus person job that is not a one person job but they probably rationally understood yeah if we work together we have more food right right and also sort of going on that humans are naturally social animals and philip and i are not qualified to talk about you know pre-human primates and what they did but we know that they were social animals so there's something in our biology that, that lends to being social creatures but all of those things are enhanced or backed up by myth, right? Those in power frequently develop myths to justify their holding power. They, they rely on certain on myths being told. Maybe stories that we tell each other, and we'll get more into this later in the episode, enhance the levels of human cooperation that are possible. And maybe something about our social roots has to do with the rise of myths. So we see that myth may not be the all-encompassing factor, but we're, we're pretty sure that it's, that, it's a, that it's a significant factor. And we know that because all human societies from the you know from from the level of like bands or tribes up to the mass societies with hundreds of million or billions of people that we see today have myths that they tell right so it's there yeah and i think that to that point of all humans have it and and all, all human societies do this and there's something about us that's that's social i think it's a good question to ask of why myths yeah why can't we why aren't we just social? Why do we have these stories? Why do we tell ourselves these stories? And there are really two main arguments. And this is another topic that, you know, Harry and I are not wildly qualified to talk on. So we'll just get sort of the highlights. Yeah, we'll get the highlights of the two sort of main schools of thought here. One school of thought is sort of this idea that myths, because they allow for a larger social group, if you can have these stories that are shared amongst Mm -hmm. a bunch of people, rather than simple rational cooperation. Right. Then well, you can have you can have bigger groups of people mm-hmm. and then these are going to compete out smaller groups. And right. so basically human beings evolved to be able to communicate these in these ways. There's like a natural selection component. Right. That's one explanation. And it, it has there's some controversies around that one and there's controversies around around the other explanation as well, but the idea is that people who can cooperate on larger levels are going to outlast or outcompete those groups. 
And one important thing to pull out of that, and this will be very important as we continue to discuss myth over the next couple of weeks, is that it sort of has this definite in-group, out-group component, right? That right. it's a product of, that myth is a product of competition, or myth is something that facilitates being competitive against another social group. And that is very much at odds with the other explanation, which is what we would call the maybe like social construction, social constructionist or social constructivist explanation, which is the idea that humans are more or less blank slates, right? We don't necessarily, there's no such thing as a human nature, but that right through our interactions with each other, we develop these stories. And it's not about competition. It's just that we sort of, that it's just something that we kind of do. And our identities are shaped around each other by these stories that we tell. And that also helps to explain cooperation. But importantly, it might not have that same competitive element, that fundamentally existentially competitive element. And it may not have a genetic explanation. It may just be something that humans have sort of through neuroplasticity or anything, something like that have have been able to do. Right. And so those are sort of two main schools of thought about why myths exist and why human beings do it. But we're not going to make a conclusion on that. We're going to talk about those more later in this episode and also in in future episodes. But the important thing to, to, to note is that as we said, it's something that you find in all human societies. So regardless right. of why we do it, it's an important element of social organization in human beings. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. And the academic literature that exists, and we'll have some of the, we'll, we'll, we'll put some of it in our show notes. And again, I highly recommend if you're listening to this and you want to know more, check out the show notes. We pick readings for every episode that we go over to do our research and we think that we be beneficial for all of our listeners to read. But some of this academic literature, empirical literature that's been done on this finds that religious people tend to be more pro-social, meaning they have more, they're more cooperative, perhaps more reciprocally altruistic towards each other in their own in-groups to each other, Christians to Christians, etc., right? But not just that it's true of religion, but it's also true of civic pro-sociality, that if we have, you know, collective civic identities, we are more pro-social towards who we identify in the same civic group as, as, as us, so countries and, and stuff like that, or even maybe, you know, like a state in the United States or even subnational groups, right? So the evidence is there that these things affect our behavior and how we behave towards right. one another, that myths affect our behavior and shape how we, you know, interact with each other. But the big question there also, again, and we haven't explained yet, but what we're about to get into is how, how do they do that? Yeah. I think the principal component of how myths work is that they communicate narratives symbolically. And what these do through the communication of symbolic narratives that are accepted by society about life and about virtue and about good and bad is that when they're widely believed, they end up constraining people's behavior through values and morals and norms. And importantly, if everyone believes them, then you don't need to have watchmen at every corner, right? Right. Because if everyone believes these things to be true, that this is good, this is bad, according to this story... Their behavior will be self-regulating. They'll feel pride when they do the right thing, and they'll feel shame when they do the wrong thing, and they'll avoid it, not because anybody's punishing them, but because they're punishing themselves, right? Because they believe... Or rewarding themselves. Or rewarding themselves, because they believe that they've done a good or a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? Because they accept that these stories about what's good and bad are, are true and correct. Yeah. I mean, so, right. I mean, I think we would say that the myths that we tell 
have embedded in them, right, certain norms and values of a society. Going back to an example of ancient of ancient Athens, right? Like part of the myth is that it's it's named after right the goddess Athena, goddess of wisdom, and you know Athens was a city where philosophic inquiry and the arts were highly valued. Wisdom was highly valued. And perhaps that myth came about as wisdom came to be more highly valued. But either way, it played a role in sort of, you know, shaping the identity and thus the norms and values of that society. And that's, I think, you know, of, of, of crucial importance. And it helps make people cooperative and it helps them obey the rules of the society because they're backed up by something that feels either supernatural or even or, you know, even just quasi-supernatural makes them feel like they should obey those rules and cooperate with each other. Right. And also, I think this is something that we touched on earlier, but we can talk about a little bit more now is that they're not always just simple narratives about good and bad. Very often, political myths provide narratives of the origin of a political society. Mm -hmm. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Who are we principally? And these narratives, besides the ones that constrain behavior, and these do too, but these also give people a justification for the lives that they live mm -hmm. and also give a society a sense of direction and a sense of continuity with the past, which is important to a lot of people. Right. Right? To feel that not just they personally, but their society should exist. Yeah. And is living up to something. Right. Is doing something worthwhile. Right. Right? It has um, both an origin, and it also, I think those origin stories also help constitute the goals of the society. Right. In important ways. Right. And one important lesson here is that these myths are not constant. Mm -hmm. And I think you touched on that when you said maybe the city sort of got this name as it was, got this association with Athena as wisdom became more valued, or maybe it was the other way around because these things change Yeah, and society's self-definitions change. And if you look at U.S. history, you can see an excellent example. I think that when we talk about the founding, we often talk about the founders as if they were had some sort of monolithic thought. You, you were talking about this the other day, Harry, and I think it's really important. We talk about them as if they had some single monolithic thought, but the reality is that there were loads of disagreements. Huge disagreements, fundamental disagreements. Yeah, about what the society, the government, the constitution should look like. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, we inherited those disagreements. People talk about the constitution as if it's a document of compromise, and there are some compromises, some terrible compromises but there are also a great deal of ambiguities right that are there because nobody could agree on what to put down right right so yeah. okay we'll leave it open and people will sort of sort it out as we go down the line through history and i think one of the one of the big disagreements that remained with some amount of ambiguity was the question of slavery and the question of states' rights and the regulation of things like slavery. Right. And you see this disagreement come to a point of resolution with Lincoln's presidency right. and the Civil War. Right. And that is a moment in which a myth, our myth, what we believed, who we were, what our founding documents meant was under these were all under great revision. Right. Right. And rethinking and reforming mm -hmm. and refounding as a society. And 
I think the important thing to note about Lincoln is that after the Civil War and during the Civil War, he never framed it as we're founding a new society. Right. He said, we are bringing our society in line with the original intent. Right. Right. And in line with the, with the goals of the past. He reframed reform as, con- as continuous Continuity, with the past. Yeah. And that's a critical part of myth because that allows it to be sort of venerated as something ancient, as something, even though it wasn't that old in, you know, the, in, in real terms by the time Lincoln came around, but it allows us to venerate it as something old and yeah. something respectable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think myths tend to come with connotations of like unity, right? That, you know, we were always this way and we will always be this way. That there's a, a, a through line, a narrative of our society, which is sort of always the same. And of course, we see historically that that is constantly being altered and shifted, right? but still with the intent of maintaining the perception of that continuity. Right. And that's a very important characteristic of myth and, and sort of how it works. And I think if you want an example of of Lincoln talking about this in this way. We'll add his speech to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, I think it was, to the show notes. It's a great speech. I mean, Lincoln is a great orator, so it's just one example among many. But it's a really interesting speech in the way he talks about we need to reform our system and venerate the past. But that aside, that aside, I think that's an important note. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That is an important note. But I think one of the most fundamental ways that myth functions is that it aligns the perceived good of the individual, right? So what the individual should do for him or herself with the good of the community, the common good. And so, you know, individuals are convinced by myth to think that what is good for the community is also good for them. What's good for them should also be good for the community up to and including laying their lives down for the community, right? So this, this identification that exists at the deepest level between the, the common good and the individual good and myths sort of promote that like unification of for the venerated tradition for the venerated past with whatever you know the individual good happens happens to be yeah and i think that points to the fact that people are willing to lay down their lives in defense of a community because of certain myths if the myths are compelling yeah if the myths are compelling points to the fact that Myths don't just provide a basis for cooperation and mutual security. Right. If they were just about mutual security, then people wouldn't be getting themselves killed in defense of them. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's not right. It's not just about like, oh, I understand that I'm better off if I watch his back and he watches mine, because at a certain point that will break down. Right. If I realized like, you know, if, if, if both of our lives are on the line, my interest is to flee and not, you know, to give my, my existence up for Phillips, for example. Although I would, I'd take a bullet for you, Philip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it gives us this elevated sense that even by laying down my life, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, that is actually good for me because it's good for the community. It unifies the perception of individual good with the perception of communal good. So it's elevated in a sense. It elevates us beyond our rational understanding of our own, like, you know, well-being. And obviously no one wants to be in a position where their lives are going to be on the line. And actually, you know, more or less, right, the history of war suggests that that, that that tends to break down frequently. And those myths may break down frequently when people's lives are on the line. But, you know, what causes people to get together and, 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 and work together and cooperate, not just in war, but also, right, all those things that are between, you know, cooperating on, you know, 
building a house together all the way to, you know, putting your lives on the line for each other, right? All those things are made possible by the elevated sense that myths engender in, in communities. And so in that way, right, I think in, in practical economic terms, right, that sort of eliminates or ameliorates, right, what we think of as like the free rider problem, the idea that someone can reap the benefits of society or social organization by not actually participating in it, right? So, you know, a good example is like common defense, right? The idea that, you know, I, Philip and I, even though we don't fight in the military, we don't have to sign up, reap the benefits of having a military that defends the country. And as an example of how that free rider problem was eliminated through the use of myth, World War II in the United States and, you know, World War I also in, in, in Britain, for example, people were rolling up to the enlistment centers in huge numbers right. to go over and join the fight. There's a great documentary about World War I, They Shall Not Grow Old, wherein some veterans of that war, British veterans of that war, talk about how one of them was 16 years old or 15 years old. He wasn't old enough, but he lied about his age to go and fight, right. you know, because in those moments where you would expect to have a free rider problem where people would say, someone else will go defend the country. I don't want to put my life on the line. There was propaganda and myth right. about what the war was about, right? why we were in the U.S. case going over to Europe to protect democracy, we right. said, right? right? And that struck a chord in people's hearts and they wanted to do it because they felt it was worth doing, yeah. right? And I think that's a great example of how, of just how powerful myth can be in mm -hmm. causing people to abandon their personal interest or align their personal interest with the common good or the good of the society. Right. And war provides all kinds of examples, but it also, as you said, it breaks down sometimes. And there are lots of stories from veterans who believed that when they enlisted, went over and came back very disillusioned. Yeah about those myths. So I just think that's a great example of that. But we, so far, we've talked about all kinds of advantages and, you know, pros of myths and politics, the kinds of things that they enable, all the good things about them. But there are still problems. Certainly. And I think they're actually implicit in our discussion. You're probably already thinking of some of them. Some objections have certainly already come to mind. And those, those are quite valid, right? One relatively straightforward one is that I think perhaps as a society grows larger and larger and becomes maybe more diverse geographically and in political thought, maybe those myths start to break down. They become more and more diffuse. And in a country of 300 million people, and like the United States, and this is really going to be the thematic uh, material of next episode, but it's, you know, these, these, these collective myths may kind of break down and be questioned, especially as people have a diversity of experience in the country and throughout the country's history, which I think served to undermine the myth and served to undermine the myth perhaps for good reason. But it's important, right, to note that as the society grows and grows larger, those myths become perhaps more fragile. Yeah. And I think also talking about war, Right. As we just have. Yeah. Going back to this in-group, out-group dynamic that myths create. Because myths give form to a society as distinct from others. Right. In Athens, their their first king was divine. They were descended, a lot of them, the same thing in Rome. Right. Uh, they were all descended from divinity. Right. In America, it was a virtuous religious group compared to the rest of Christianity and other religions, mm -hmm. right? 
everything is posed in relation to each other. Mm -hmm. We have this community as opposed to every other. It's unique in some particular and important way. Mm -hmm. And that creates these dynamics between the in-group and the out-group. And that can justify really unspeakable things. In the American context, this belief about this white Protestant group being divine as opposed, or divinely favored as opposed to other groups, enabled unspeakable acts of cruelty toward Native Americans who these settlers thought that they were entitled by God to remove from their divinely granted land and unspeakable acts of cruelty to Africans brought over on slave ships. And I think that that's a critical thing to note about myths is that when you create those in-group, out-group dynamics where there's something special about the in-group and which allows the in-group to justify its actions either in the past or in the present or in the future mm-hmm. with recourse to some story about how they are nat- how they are good right by nature it can it can it can justify some terrible things right the other thing the other the, the other side of that as well which i think is important is that you know myths are created by wars right we talked about this right world war 2 if you think about it world war 2 is is in so many ways foundational to the you know modern american identity that we stand for democracy against tyranny we may think of those things as going back to the declaration and perhaps to some extent they do but i think in a lot of ways it was really renewed and reinvigorated by the second world war which helped i think solidify a lot of our myths with some beneficial advantages right i think we see that you know without world war ii we probably wouldn't have had civil rights for example but at the same time we see that it that war in a lot of ways helps solidify those myths and may continue to solidify those in-group, out-group dynamics. And that that has consequences. And those consequences may involve extraordinary degrees of, of cruelty, even as they may bring certain, certain benefits. So I think the important question to ask at our conclusion, mm-hmm. as we've discussed, there are potentially good things and there are potentially bad things about myths. It's all about the character of the myth and how it's used. Right. And human beings can use all kinds of narratives to justify all kinds of things, good and bad. Right. That's how we are. But the important question I think to ask, and this goes to how is this relevant to liberal democracy? What does it mean for us today? Is that liberal liberal democracy poses itself as a secular, rational form of politics Mm -hmm. you know no religion no myths no stories just everyone gets together and decides on the issue and that's our government and in some ways that may seem aspirational to us that politics can become ordered and decent when it abandons the sort of barbarism of these in-group, out-group dynamics, these myths and stories that are untrue and lead us to do terrible things. And maybe it is aspirational, but it's worth asking ourselves what life would be like without myths. Right. Good and bad. Yeah. If If every day you got up and every time you interacted with someone or cooperated with someone you thought to yourself 
rationally, if that's the aspiration. You thought to yourself rationally, well, this person isn't going to screw me because it might hurt his social standing in the future if I tell other people that he screwed me. So he's not going to. Or I'm not going to screw this person because it might hurt me. And that's the only reason I'll be nice to this person or do the right thing toward this person. Are you going to be a happy person if you live purely rationally? If your politics are purely rational? No. Or are you going to be like Norman Bates? Yeah. You're going to be a bit of a psychopath if everything becomes simply rational. Yeah. Right? So myths can justify all kinds of bad things, and so can rationality. Right. But what myths can do is they can bond us to other people. Right. In a way that maybe is unjustifiable rationally. For example, in a country of 300 million, why should I, if I say, I'm living in California now, but I'm from Kansas City, but... Why should I say, for example, care about what happens to people in Nebraska if I'm living here and I'm safe and happy? There's no reason rationally. There's absolutely nothing that ties me to those people rationally. But myths, there's something, there is an American. Yeah. You know, there is this symbolic relation that myths establish that allow us to cooperate and coexist and care in some way or another about people that are very far away that maybe have nothing really to do with us in a material sense. Yeah. And so, right on that note of, you know, Philip's example of why I care about other Americans, if there's no perhaps rational reason for doing so, we're going to talk about more. We're going to talk more next week about American myths in particular and really delve into the examples in history of the United States and talk about its myths, its hypocrisies, and the struggles to create a kind of national identity based on shared narratives. And we're very excited to get into that, but that about wraps it up for for today's episode. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing to catch that issue next week of Bird's Eye. And in the meantime, new episodes of Spectacles Insight and Focus for a new way of seeing politics. If you'd like to comment on this episode, say anything about it, feel free to visit the link in the show notes to go to our website. And thanks for tuning in.